0: So many people ask me about the genetic analysis in the Richard III case, so I thought I would do a little podcast about it. I think to start with is that I don't think that many people realize how intense this project was. It was working stupidly long hours under difficult conditions and under really intense pressure. It took two years of work, but in two parts. And this is because a film crew had been brought in and they wanted the results to fit their schedule, not the scientific one. And I'll chat about that later. And not only did it involve dealing with the inevitable politics around the case, there was the really intense media and public interest. And with it came literally thousands. And I mean thousands thousands of emails from people, mostly from people saying they thought they were related to Richard III, but not a small amount from people threatening various things, including one from someone who repeatedly emailed to say that they would sue me if I didn't give them the results personally, rather than publish in a scientific journal, as is the appropriate route to go. Alongside this was the double testing on everything in multiple locations, having to design new experiments because they hadn't been done before, all knowing there would be intense scrutiny of everything that was going to be published, both by the scientific community and others. And all the while, knowing that what hung on this was the identification of a former king of England and when and where he would be reinterred. So let's start at the beginning. I was first brought on to the Richard III project in the summer of 2011 by Richard Buckley. So he was the director of the University of Leicester Archaeological Services and has well over 30 years of experience excavating in Leicester he'd heard about me and my slightly unusual background. So I did archaeology in Canada and Greece and the UK before I went on to read archaeology and anthropology at the University of Cambridge. And then I moved into genetics at the University of Leicester. So I was lucky enough to have Professor Sir Alec Jeffries, who invented DNA fingerprinting, on my PhD panel many years previous. So Richard asked if I wanted to be involved in this project. And so I was the first person to join the University of Leicester team after Richard Buckley. Richard also gave my number to Philippa Langley. So Philippa was from the Richard III Society and it was she who had first approached him about working in partnership on an excavation. She, needless to say, had a lot of expertise around Richard III himself, but not around archeology span or genetics. So this is where we at the university could add expertise and the vast majority of the funding to the project. In addition to this, As the friary where Richard III was known to have been buried was land now owned by the council and also privately owned, in order for the excavation to be able to proceed, there needed to be what's known as a written scheme of excavation that had to be presented to the city archaeologist and permission granted by the landowners. So it was Richard Buckley who prepared all that and submitted it as part of putting the university's part of the project together. Now, the idea was that if during the course of the excavation we came across the remains of an individual that could be a candidate for being Richard III, then I would lead the genetic analysis for the project. So I spent a lot of time talking to Philippa about how the University of Leicester Archaeological Services could do the excavation under the right conditions, known as clean conditions, and how the genetic analysis could be carried out And I also did some filming with a television company for her in the summer of 2011. She had brought them in because she was hoping to do a television program about the excavation, and she needed me to talk on camera about how the genetics could be done so that she could secure a production team and a commission. So I think it's really important to point out here that the university paid for the majority of the excavation and all of the post excavation identification work, including our salaries, they had to pull some of us off of other projects and backfill our posts, as well as all of the costs of the research. What the Richard III Society did do was they commissioned a desk-based study of the site, which gave the history and included where the likely location of the friary was based on previous evidence from various sources, most of which was very well known. Phil Stone, who was chair of the Richard III Society until he sadly passed away in 2020, paid for the ground-penetrating radar himself through the Society. The Richard III Society then contributed some of the money for the excavation itself, but nothing towards the post-excavation and identification research itself, and certainly not our salaries. That was covered by the University of Leicester. So we weren't commissioned for this. The university entered into it as a partnership. So my role would cover two main areas. As this was going to potentially involve DNA work, trying to retrieve DNA from ancient remains, I was the lead on how we could excavate under what's known as clean conditions. Now, this is because after death, our DNA degrades and breaks down and becomes very damaged until there's no DNA left to be able to look at or sequence. Now, I would say kind of think of it as a book. So as the DNA starts to break down, you might still be able to read some of the pages. And as it breaks down even further, you might still be able to read some of the paragraphs. And eventually, it gets to the point where it's broken down so far, there is nothing left to read. If you handle or breathe on the remains, then you contaminate it with lots of your own DNA, which can swamp out the signal of any DNA that might be left in the remains. So best practice is to work to minimize contamination of the remains with DNA from any one of us on the team, starting from the excavation from day one. So excavation of any candidate remains would need to be done with us archeologists wearing gloves, face mask, suit, to protect the remains as much as possible from our own DNA. So that's why you see pictures of me and Joe Appleby, our lovely osteologist in what looks like CSI gear, on the excavation. And anyone involved in the project gave a DNA sample, so I had a record of those to rule out any contamination. Now, the second bit of my role was carrying out the genetic analysis on any putative remains of Richard III to see if the genetic data was consistent with these being his remains. Essentially, what is done in a case like this is the DNA from the putative remains of Richard III would be compared against a known relative. Now then, this could have been someone like a close relative, but that would involve getting your mitts on someone else's remains as well which might mean exhuming them, something which is quite rightfully not something you do lightly, and you need permission to do so. Secondly, the issue of DNA degradation still applies. After you've gone through the process of exhuming remains, there may not be any DNA left to analyze. So the alternative is to use a living relative, bearing in mind that Richard III left no known living descendants. Now there's something quite important here. Because of how our DNA is inherited, not just any old relative would do. So our DNA is a complex mixture of that of just some of our many ancestors. So given the number of generations since Richard III, I had to concentrate on using two sections of our DNA that are passed down in a really simple way, mitochondrial DNA and the Y chromosome. So let's have a look at these a little bit more closely. Okay, mitochondrial DNA is a small circular piece of DNA and it's in the egg. So an egg gets fertilized by a sperm and then this starts dividing and each time the cell divides, copies of the mitochondrial DNA are also made. So the mitochondrial DNA that you have is yours, but the starting template was given to you by your mum. So Richard III would have received his mitochondrial DNA type from his mother, who would also have passed it down to all of her children, boys and girls. So all of Richard's brothers and sisters should have the same mitochondrial DNA type. And as it's passed down in the egg, none of his brothers could pass it on. But any of Richard's sisters, if they had children, they would also pass it on to their children and so on. Now then, as the DNA is copied, for example, to a cell that's gonna be a sperm or an egg cell, it can be a perfect copy, or it can get a little typo in it. Now, these typos are known as mutations, but we know how these work, so we can take them into account. So his female line relatives should have an identical or near identical version of mitochondrial DNA as him. It's important to say that no one else has Richard's DNA, he has his own DNA. Everyone has their own DNA, which is unique to them. But you can expect relatives to have sections of DNA that are in common with one another because of that shared ancestry. So let's have a look at the Y chromosome. So the Y chromosome has on it, putting it really simply, the gene that sends the fetus down the path to becoming a boy, so only men have it, and they pass it down to their sons only. So it travels just down the male line. So same thing, no one will have Richard's DNA here either, but if they are a male line relative, then they should have identical or a near identical version of the Y chromosome that he has. Okay, so now that we've got DNA inheritance out of the way, where do we find these relatives then to use as comparators? Okay. Philippa did tell me that a fellow Ricardian, John Ashdown Hill, had identified a woman who he thought was descended from Richard III's eldest sister, Anne of York. This was Joy Ibsen, who colleagues of John Ashdown Hill in Canada had tracked down a few years previously. She had done a DNA test with a testing company all those years ago, but it was really low resolution testing and I would need another sample to be able to do the tests at the proper resolution for this study. Now, Joy sadly passed away several years ago, but obviously she would have passed down her mitochondrial DNA type to her children, one of whom, Michael, was living in London. Now, this next bit of the project was really critical. If I'm going to compare the DNA from any remains with a known relative of Richard III to see if there's a match, then I have to be certain that the person I'm comparing the DNA from the remains to is definitely a relative and related in the way that we think they are. So I say it's like a puzzle of two halves. We have to have one side of the puzzle nailed down as being correct, and then see if the other half of the puzzle fits. So I chatted to John about the family tree that he'd come up with, and he directed me to read his book and a paper that he'd written. But it became clear from reading those, and he was the first to admit this, that his grasp of the genetics came from reading a popular science book. So there were some scientific errors in what he was writing, but that's fine for the sort of articles he was writing, which were history ones in non-peer-reviewed journals. And what was great about this project was that everyone brought their own area of expertise to the party. His work on the history of Richard III was extensive, far more than I knew, and I could bring my genetics expertise to the project. But the real issue was that in none of his articles or books did he give the sources for the family tree, which he laid out. And it's a well known saying in the genealogy world that genealogy without documentation is mythology. So we really needed to double check this tree and make sure that it was correct. So this is where Kevin Schurer came in, working with David Annell, who is former principal family history specialist at the National Archives. Morris Beerbrier, a Canadian like me, who used to be an assistant keeper at the British Museum, and Bob Matthews of the Settlers Museum in New Zealand. So they worked to dig out every piece of documentary evidence to prove that this family tree was correct. Bob came in because while he was doing this, what I really wanted to know was, could we find anybody else? Because it helps to build the case. If you have a couple of people from the tree who are related through the female line on paper, and they both have the same mitochondrial DNA type, then that is giving you confidence in that family tree being correct. So they also found a second female line descendant of Anne of York. This was Wendy Duldig, whose family had emigrated to New Zealand some generations previous. So Kevin had been given this name. And so we were in his office, and we put it into Google, like you do. And on one of the pages was a phone number, but it was an old page. So we wondered if it would still be valid. Kevin was off to a meeting, so I said I would grab a coffee on the way back to my office and just try it. So when I first ring, she's actually apparently in the bath, so I leave it for an hour or so and try again, and I get this lovely lady who I go, Hi, Um, my name is Tariq King and I'm from the University of Leicester and you may have heard that we've recently been doing an excavation and we think we might have found the remains of Richard III. Now I'm doing the genetic analysis and we need someone who is related in a particular way to him so we can compare the DNA to see if it's a match. And from our research, we think you're one of these people. And the first thing she said to me is, am I on the radio? Is this a great call? Which got me laughing because seeing it from her point of view, it's a pretty unusual request for someone to receive of a morning. So I talked Wendy through it all and she said she would think about it. And I said I would have Kevin give her a ring to talk her through what the team had found. So then Kevin rings her and she eventually kindly takes part. Incidentally, I love her surname, Daldig because it was anything but a dull dig that we had been on. And the other thing was that at the time, she wanted to remain anonymous, so only Kevin and I knew who she was. So I've been working on the Y chromosome and genetic genealogy for well over 20 years, and I wanted to look at the Y chromosome lineage as well. So this would mean finding male line relatives. This was actually pretty straightforward to do with Richard being descended from a noble family. So this is where Kevin went through Burke's peerage because there was something important here to consider. So the Y chromosome is passed down through the male line. And so that means that a man has the Y chromosome of his biological father who may not be the father that was recorded. So it was really important for me not to be testing fathers and sons or closely related individuals because that's essentially paternity testing. So I only wanted people who were related no closer than second cousin. And in the end, we decided to go for five living male line descendants of Henry Somerset, the fifth Duke of Beaufort, who was born in the 17th century. So all told, I had seven living relatives to test. Two of these were from the female line side of things to go for mitochondrial DNA tested, and the remaining five were from the male line side of things for Y chromosome testing. In terms of mitochondrial DNA, it was DNA sequencing of the entire mitochondrial genome. In terms of the Y chromosome, it was a case of doing two different things. One was a version of DNA fingerprinting, but just on the Y chromosome. And the other was looking at little sections of DNA sequence on the Y chromosome. And you do the same thing for both the modern DNA and the ancient DNA. So doing the modern DNA analysis is really straightforward. You just get a DNA sample and do the DNA testing. The ancient DNA work, I was going to be doing the same thing, but required a slightly different approach. As I said before, the DNA in ancient remains is in tiny amounts, it's damaged, and it's in tiny fragments. So you have to be really careful not to contaminate it. And this was where the designing of experiments came in, because though the basis of doing these experiments was standard, designing them to fit for the ancient DNA, which was in tiny fragments, hadn't been done for the bits of DNA that I wanted to look at. So this meant me designing several new assays, testing them in modern DNA, and then using them on the ancient remains. So you have to do this work in what's known as a clean lab. So this is where you work to certain protocols to minimize contamination. So you work in the full CSI type gear and you keep the lab ultra clean. Now, to this day, we don't have clean labs at the University of Leicester. And with this sort of high profile project, you always replicate your results in two separate labs to make sure you're getting the same results in both labs. So I went and did the work in the labs at the University of York in the lab of Mickey Hofreiter with Gloria Gonzalez-Fortes and also in the lab of Patricia Ballaresque with Laura Tenasso and they will tell you I spent very, very long hours working in those labs on this project because in the first instance I was working to a deadline for the initial results. In fact, I was working right up to the wire for those results because Philip had brought in that television company and they wanted us to announce the results to fit their television schedule. So in order to be able to do this for what they wanted, I just concentrated on a very small, very variable region of the mitochondrial DNA that though it would not be good enough to publish a scientific paper, it would give a good idea if this was gonna be a match. And then what I could do was do the bulk of the analysis once the announcement was out of the way. And I can't tell you how odd that felt being a scientist. So normally what happens is that you do the entire project from start to finish. You write it up. You send it to a journal for publication. The journal then sends that out for peer review. So this is where other scientists read the work, ensure the science has been done properly and is publishable and so on. And they can come back with basically three main decisions. Reject, the paper isn't good enough. Second, okay, this looks okay, but the team needs to do more experiments or changes first. Or finally, yes, this looks great, publish it. So to stand up and give the results without going through this process was going against everything that you normally do as a scientist. It also meant I had scientific colleagues not realizing the background to this, questioning me and my science, which was pretty hard to take. I spent a lot of time explaining to them that the reason I had done this was because of the odd nature of the project and that there was more to come. So the results I gave on February the 4th, 2013 were preliminary results, but I knew that to publish it would require a lot more work. So cue me spending many, many, many hours in the ancient DNA lab designing assays, running experiments, and so on to get the full mitochondrial DNA data and the Y chromosome data. And the other thing I did was have colleagues confirm all of my work on the modern DNA side as well. Basically, I wasn't going to take any chances with this. So ultimately, the results came down to this. There was a perfect mitochondrial DNA match between Michael Ibsen and the skeletal remains. There was a single mitochondrial DNA difference between Wendy and Michael and the skeletal remains. However, it was one of the faster mutating sites of mitochondrial DNA, and we could take that into account. Now, the Y chromosome threw up something interesting, but not at all surprising from my point of view there wasn't a DNA match. Now this could easily be down to what we term a false paternity. So that's where the biological father is not the recorded father. And it can be reasons such as an unrecorded adoption or one man's child being passed off as that of another. It's known to happen at about one to 2% per generation. Now there's been 19 generations between Richard III, You go up to Edward III and then down the tree to Henry Somerset, who is the common ancestor of the five men who I tested. Now, that's plenty of time for at least one, if not more, false paternity events to take place. It was actually a bit more complicated than that. So there must have been at least two false paternities, and one of them was recent. So one of the five men I tested did not match the other four. And on going to speak to the family, it turned out that they had been aware of a family story that an ancestor's child was not his biological child. They just hadn't mentioned it. Still, to be on the safe side, I got another DNA sample and I repeated it and had a colleague do it blind. Now the other four were not identical to one another, but we know about how mutations occur. And the mutations we found were as you'd expect, given how they're related. So this gave us a Y chromosome type of Henry Somerset, who was their common ancestor. Now, that did not match Richard III. But as I say, that's not unexpected. Now I have to profess this strongly with the fact that we don't know where in these 19 generations that a false paternity or even false paternities occurred. But what was interesting was that some of the people in those 19 generations were part of the monarchy at the time, and so if it happened in any of those links in the chain, that would be interesting in terms of the historical monarchy. So Edward III forms the top of the genealogical tree. From him descends the male line lineage, leading to Edward IV, and Richard III, and if it happened in there, then that could affect the Yorkist Plantagenet kings. Descending the other way from Edward III, you have the male line lineage leading to Henry Somerset that passes through John of Gaunt, the father of Henry IV, and leading to the Lancastrian Plantagenet kings of Henry V and Henry VI. John of Gaunt's illegitimate son, John Beaufort, was the great-grandfather of Henry VII and the Tudor dynasty of kings and queens. So we put this possibility in the academic paper just saying that it was an interesting finding. So for me, as a scientist, the big thing when we published the paper was that it had been a huge amount of work. And I was very proud of the science. But the main thing the press were interested in was this false paternity and should Queen Elizabeth be on the throne. So that was a bit mortifying. I spent a lot of time telling people to, you know, just back up a bit. We don't know where the false paternity or more than one had taken place. And even if it was in those couple of generations and statistically it was more likely to be elsewhere in the tree than just those two generations out of the 19, it would not affect the modern monarchy. First of all, Henry Tudor descended from a line that was banned from ever taking the throne, so Henry Tudor had taken the throne by conquest. Secondly, the throne doesn't pass down in a straight line from Henry Tudor to Elizabeth II. There are plenty of detours along the way, so it's not relevant to our queen's reign at all. Still... That was what I spent most of my time explaining to the press about. Now, the final thing was to carry out the statistical analysis, and this was the all-important probability that these were the remains of King Richard III. And the way we did this was the same way as a missing person's case is done. Richard III is missing. Last seen being buried in the choir of the Church of the Greyfriars in Leicester. So you have a list of things that you're looking for to help identify the remains, just as if someone goes missing, you list where they were last seen in a a certain location, they have this appearance and so on. Well, for Richard, the list was he was male. He was age 32 when he died. He died in 1485. We know he died in battle. He may, have had some sort of spinal abnormality, as famously portrayed by Shakespeare, but he was writing a long time after Richard's death, so you really have to look at contemporary descriptions of Richard's appearance, of which there are two. So one doesn't mention anything about a spinal abnormality, but does say he's got slender arms and thighs and a great heart. The other mentions that he had one shoulder higher than the other, so possibly a spinal abnormality? we know he was high status and we know who he's related to so we can do DNA analysis. So let's have a look at the evidence we could bring to bear on this and could bring to the statistical analysis. One, the skeleton was male. We know Richard was a boy and we could tell that the skeleton was male from the bones and I could also do a DNA test to check as well, which I did. Now, we can tell from the bones that this person's age at death was around 30 to 34 years old. Richard died when he was 32. Three, the model radiocarbon dates came back as 1456 to 1530. We know that Richard died in 1485. This skeleton had battle injuries. That's our number four, and we know that Richard died in battle. Number five, The skeleton had scoliosis of the spine, and we know from those contemporary sources, or at least one, that he may have had a spinal abnormality. Six, the skeleton was found in a high status part of the church, Richard was high status. Seven, now there was another bit of evidence that we could have brought into this, but we didn't. Now that was the stable isotope analysis, which showed that this person had a high status diet but they were buried in a high status part of the church. So that starts to get circular and it could bias the results. So we actually kept them out. Indeed, the whole time we did this, we kept erring on the side of caution and erring towards it not being Richard. We were always trying to play devil's advocate. Eight, now the Y chromosome data didn't fit, but that's fine. You just build the statistics into the case. Nine, Finally, there was a mitochondrial genome DNA match with two living female line relatives for a rare mitochondrial DNA type. So when you bring all of that together, you get what's known as a likelihood ratio, which is where it's how likely this is Richard III versus someone who by chance fits all of the criteria, but isn't Richard and the likelihood ratio is 6.7 million to one. So this then translates to a probability of 99.999 to 99.99999% that these are the remains of Richard III. So needless to say, the evidence was overwhelming that these are the remains of King Richard III, and that released him to be reinterred in Leicester Cathedral in 2015. So as I said at the beginning, this was the end of two years of huge amounts of work under really tremendous pressure, not least because so many people hung on these results to finally reinter a former king of England.